just want you to listen as we go to prayer to a couple of words. John already read them from Psalm 113. The Lord was sort of moving our hearts and minds in the same direction this morning. And right there in the middle of Psalm 113, uh, the psalmist, we don't know who he is, but he asks the question, who is like the Lord our God? He is enthroned on high, yet he humbles himself to behold things in heaven and on the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with princes, princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. And that's the question, Father, we, we want to ask and contemplate before you as we just bow not just our heads but our hearts in reverence and in worship and in adoration. Who is like our God? Lord, we know the answer. No one is like our God. No one ever has been, no one is, no one ever will be like you. For you are great and exalted above the heavens. You have a heavenly throne. You have myriads of angels worshiping you, Lord, as you rightly deserve. And yet at the same time, you, through Jesus, humbled yourself. Not just to look into things here on earth, but to enter into things here on earth. And as Tim reminded us so wonderfully this morning, you did it to save us from the wretchedness and the penalty and the devastation of our sin. Father, we do live in difficult times. We do live in uncertain, confusing days, but we have a Savior who is not confused. We have a God who is not worried. Father, we have a King and a Lord in heaven who is not sweating it out, wondering what's happening next. Because as we just sang, He is, you are faithful. Father, I pray that we will not only rejoice in that faithfulness today, but we will rest in that faithfulness, the faithfulness of a God who loved us enough to rescue us from the penalty and power of sin. A God who is faithful to wake us up this morning, to bring us together in the company of fellow believers in Jesus Christ. Give us voices to sing your praise, ears to hear your, your truth, and hearts to respond. Not to what I or anyone else here has to say, but what you will say through the power of your Spirit. And so, Father, we know your Spirit's here, but we invite, Father, we plead with you to move among us in each and every heart. Father, as you humble yourself, the scripture says, to, to deal with us, that you will in fact do it. You will deal with us. That you will be the one, Father, even as I speak and, and, and some things come out right and some things come out wrong, Lord, we, we know it's not about the instrument, it's about the message, and it's about the one who brings the message, that is your spirit. And we pray that even now he would begin to move in our hearts to guide us in truth to stir up our hearts, to guard us from confusion and misunderstanding and error. Father, to deal with our hearts, even right now, whatever may be in the way, whatever we may have carried in with us by way of blessing or by way of heartache that might somehow interfere with us, Father, entering into communion with you. Father, above all, we pray that as we go to your word now, as you guide us in truth, as you guard us from error, as you deliver us from ourselves, we pray that we might see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus Christ clearly this morning in the proclamation of your word. May we see Jesus Christ only this morning in the proclamation of your word. And when we leave here in a little while, God, we want to leave rejoicing. Rejoicing because we were invited into your presence. We got the opportunity to sit at the feet of Jesus. We were reminded that he loved us enough to lay his life down and that he's glorious enough to take it up again. Father, have your way with us now, we ask in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, we'll take a moment and, as always, dismiss the boys and girls for Children's Church. We've got some kiddos who are part of that, the five-year-olds, the second, up to the second graders, they can 
make their way out the back door for some time in God's Word. As we aim to do the same here this morning, I want you to turn in your Bible as we settle in for the next several minutes together. I want you to turn in your Bible to the New Testament to Matthew chapter 28. This morning I want you to turn, and and if you've not been here the past couple of weeks, or if you have and have simply forgotten, I'll take a moment as we get into God's Word, before we read God's Word, to to sort of set up what we're doing and where we're headed and what this is all about. But even as you do that, as you make your way into the scripture this morning, let me just acknowledge um, that uh, that I, I fully understand that sort of terror, even after all these years that Tim was talking about. I, I, I grasp what he's saying. I still grapple with it all the time. And, and that's just typical. I've, I've become sort of accustomed to that. But today I realize I've got a couple other things working against me, and, and I'm just going to get that out of the way uh, so that maybe it will quiet my heart. One of which is I realize that many, many of you this morning are, are, are completely distracted, all right? And you're distracted because of something that happened last night in Chicago in a baseball game, and I'm, I'm here to tell you that strange feeling that you're experiencing this morning that's distracting, it's called joy, all right? Uh, It's perfectly healthy, it's perfectly normal, and it will pass. I just wanted you to know you're going to be okay, because you've probably not felt it before. It's called joy, and it's a good thing. Congratulations, enjoy it as long as it lasts. But the second thing, that's the one I knew coming in. That's that's sort of the obstacle I had to get over. Some of you, you're just, your minds and your hearts are in a completely other place, and, and it's been a long time since I've been there, but I know what it feels like. But, but now I have this second thing, and it's only occurred since, since the beginning of the service, and that is now, in addition to realizing I'm fighting this uphill battle emotionally with some of you, I have this own internal battle that I am at some point in the sermon going to look up toward the back of the room, and Tim's going to have his glasses off. <laughs> I'm just saying, <laughs> bear with me on this one, but... Uh, We all have our own battles, but God can overcome and deal with all of them, and we're going to get into his word and see what he has to say to us here today. Before we read, however, let me, as I said, let me sort of bring you up to speed or by way of review or maybe to some of you introduction, explain what we're doing in God's word uh, today and have been over the past couple of weeks. Because for the past couple of Sundays and continuing for at least a, a couple more weeks, we have been talking in and from God's word about the theme of revival. We're talking about revival, which I have uh, defined for you, and I will give you this definition again. As I've said before, it's probably not the best definition. It's certainly not the only definition, but it's the definition of revival we are working with together here today, and it is this. When I say the word revival this morning in the message, I am talking about an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit. Something that awakens the church, God's people, like never before, to the majesty of the Lord, to the supremacy of Christ, to the power of the gospel, through which, when such a movement of the Holy Spirit occurs, believers are transformed, unbelievers are saved, and society is reformed to the glory of God. And as I've said the past two weeks, I'll say it again, we've not seen something like that in our lifetimes before, or in preceding several. But as I'll have also said the past couple of Sundays, we desperately need that like never before. We need an extraordinary movement of God's Holy Spirit to do all these things to the glory of God. We're in difficult times and we need God's help. What we've also seen, however, flowing from that definition, and and I want to remind you of this again because it is so important to remember, that if such a movement occurs, historically speaking, in the scripture and throughout church history, if and when such an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit occurs, the thing we need to remember is it always starts here first. 
And by here, I don't mean Maranatha Bible Church, of course, but I mean in and among the people of God. Revival always truly begins, true revival does, among people who already know Jesus Christ and who, whether, whether because of circumstances or whatever the case may be, have become convinced of their absolute weakness and helplessness apart from Christ. And as such, they determine uh, that we will passionately and we will collectively come together and pursue Christ. We'll go, come after him in, in worship and prayer and adoration and praise like we never have before, insisting that whatever comes of it, all of the glory goes to Christ. Christ, and through that we have concluded over the past two Sundays, these are the two big ideas I've given you so far. Number one, you need to remember this. Revival is every believer's business. It's not just your pastor and elder's business. It's not just an evangelist's business. It's everybody's business who knows Jesus Christ. And secondly, that's what we learned the first Sunday. Secondly, last Sunday, we also discovered in God's word that revival-minded people, who whether revival ever comes to them or not, revival-minded people are people who are first and foremost passionate about God's glory. They want God to be glorified in everything above all else. But this morning, as we continue to grapple with this theme of revival, and specifically as I have presented it to you, uh, the work of setting our sails, spiritually speaking, so that when the mighty rushing wind, that's Acts 2, Pentecost, that sort of imagery, the mighty rushing wind of the Holy Spirit blows in revival again so that we are ready when it comes. I want to remind you of something else I've only touched on so far, but we're going to dig into much more deeply today, and it's this. That in revival, understand this clearly before we go any further. In revival, when it comes, again, looking in the scriptures and down through church history, when true, authentic revival comes, it is not. Everybody say, it's not. It's not that God does something brand new he's never done before. Some sort of brand new, maybe even weird manifestation of one thing or another that, that no one's ever seen in all of history. But instead, when true authentic revival comes, what happens is that the Holy Spirit pours greater power out upon and out into the normal things faithful Christians are already doing. It's not that he takes us and moves us radically from one place to another, but it comes to those who are seeking after Christ already. Who, again, even as we're reminded in communion, despite our failures and faults, have this desire to live holy, obedient, joyful Christian lives. The, the Holy Spirit pours greater power out on the normal things faithful Christians are already doing, or which, as we're going to talk about this morning, we should be doing. We may not be, but we should be. And that brings us, that is why this morning we're in Matthew 28. Where, and we're going to look at just the last few verses of Matthew 28, the scene is this. At the beginning of the chapter, some of you know this well, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The first eight or ten verses of Matthew 28 give us the scene outside the empty tomb where Jesus rises from the dead. Some of the women come. Some of the women who were among his followers come. They find the empty tomb. They encounter the angel. Then they encounter Jesus himself. And in verse 10, upon encountering Jesus, these women are given the following instruction. Look at your Bible. Jesus said to them, after they met him, greeted him, and worshipped him, Jesus said to the women who came to the tomb, don't be afraid. Go take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. And then picking the story up, down in verse 16, here's what we're told happened next. 
We're told, verse 16, that the 11 disciples, Jesus' 11 remaining faithful disciples, having gotten this message from the women who were at the tomb, proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, chances are, if you've known Jesus long, you've heard those words before. Maybe you even have them committed to memory. They are often used among us as followers of Jesus Christ. It's what we call the Great Commission. But this morning what I want to do as we dig into God's Word is I don't so much want to dig into what is probably the most familiar part of this passage to many of us, the commission itself, the go and make disciples part, verses 19 and 20. I don't want to deal with that nearly so much as I want us to deal with and dig into what came right before it. Something that I believe we must truly absorb if we are going to become revival-ready people. And what I'm talking about is what Jesus meant when he said in verse 18, all authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. Because in that statement and the surrounding context, that raises several things that, that honestly, until recently, I hadn't thought a lot about before. Perhaps you're in the same situation. Even if you have, we need to talk about it again. So there are several things that I want to show you in this passage. The first of which, stemming from that statement, is this. That I believe one of the reasons Jesus said it, and it's right there in the text, I believe verses 16 and 17 show us this is the case. That one of the reasons Jesus said what he said in verse 18, all authority has been given to me is because of the reality of the presence, number one, this is the first thing I want you to see, of an unspoken dilemma. That among the disciples of Jesus Christ that day, there was an unspoken, unuttered dilemma. Look again at verses 16 and 17. It says, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to a mountain which Jesus had designated. So they've done what he asked them to do so far. Here's the statement, though. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some were doubtful. Now, don't breeze past that. That's kind of a big deal. It's really very significant that we are told us that, because what we're being told is that in Jesus' audience that day, whether it was still only the 11 faithful disciples, or maybe others heard he was going to be there, and there's a larger crowd, whatever the case, we're talking about people who knew him, who loved him, who believed in him, and and all the rest, and But it says, even as they gathered to him, even as they followed the instruction to meet with him, there were some in the crowd on the mountain outside of Galilee there who in their hearts were harboring both adoration and hesitation. And these things were going to war, sort of, at least momentarily, in their hearts. You see, the word doubtful means to waver. It means to be pulled between two opinions. I can't make up my mind which way I'm going to go. It expresses uncertainty and double-mindedness. Now, we aren't told why they felt that way. Maybe for some of them, they're simply standing there trying to process the reality of a dead man standing alive in front of them. He rose from the dead. Kind of a big deal. Maybe it's, it's because for others of them, having already processed that, because some of them had seen him at the tomb already, They are grappling with the implications of now that he is back from the dead, our lives are forever changed. 
Maybe it was something else entirely, but there is a double-mindedness. There was a battle going on in their hearts that made them doubtful. It was an unspoken dilemma. And the point of this part of the story is that had to be dealt with before Jesus could say what he was going to say next. He had to make sure they were all on the same page before giving them their assignment. And that, again, as I said, is huge. Because doubt is still something believers grapple with today for a variety of reasons. One of the most concerning reasons to me or evidences of doubt is is that particularly today, I don't know if this has always been true, but when you talk about doubt and uncertainty uh, among believers in Jesus Christ, is, is that while some of our doubts are legitimate and some of our questions are real, I mean, there are just some things about our faith that are harder to grasp than others. There are certain things we encounter uh, as believers in Jesus Christ that make us wonder, what God up, what's God up to? What's he doing? How does this impact me? How's my life going to change? I mean, there are legitimate questions and doubts and, and all that sort of thing. But then there's this whole other realm of doubt today, and I see it everywhere I look, all of the time. And it's among otherwise faithful believers in Jesus Christ, people who understand and have received the gospel, but they sort of wear their doubts, not as something to be grappled with and worked through, but sort of a badge of honor they don't want to let go of. And what I mean by that is this, is, is, is they have doubts about the faith, they have questions about what they've believed, and they sort of hang on to that and cherish that. And I'm not saying this is widespread, but I certainly see it a lot, that these doubts are, are basically their way of saying to unbelieving friends, to the watching world, well, I believe this stuff, but I'm not a religious nut. I mean, I, I'm in love with Jesus, but I'm not a fanatic. Uh, I, I kind of want to have it, but after all, you know, this is what I believe, but I might be wrong. Listen, I'm telling you, I see this stuff. I hear this stuff, and it, and it makes me nervous that this is the way some believers think. I could be wrong about Jesus, about the Bible, about the things Christians have taught and believed and held dear and even died for for the past 2,000 years. There is a segment in the church of Jesus Christ today that wears that doubt like a badge of honor so that they can sort of fit into and have a foot in both worlds. Two directions, double-minded. Listen, as I said, there's plenty of room in our faith for honest doubts and legitimate questions. They said there are some dimensions of our faith that are harder to grasp than others, but there is a vast difference between honest hesitation and confusion and people-pleasing indifference that says, I want to have it both ways. The amazing thing is that in the way Jesus dealt with it in verse 18, he handled both of them and everything else in between. When he said the second thing that I want you to see here in this passage. First of all, there's this unspoken dilemma. Which way are we going to go? Are we all in or are we not? And in response to that unspoken dilemma, they worship, but some were doubtful. The second thing I want you to see in this passage, it's the heart of the passage, is that Jesus responds with a declaration of authority. In response to the disciples' unspoken dilemma, they worship, but some were doubtful, Jesus responds with a declaration of authority. Look very closely with me at verse 18 once again. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Pop quiz. All right? Open book so you're going to be okay. No trick questions. I just want to make sure we understand what we're reading here. All right? I'm going to ask the questions. You are going to verbalize out loud the response. Everybody understand what we're doing here? All right. Look at verse 18. All the answers are right there in front of you. Question number one, who said this? Jesus. Jesus. Absolutely. 
Question number two, based on the context of this passage, the preceding few verses, what had he just done? He had risen. Are you sure? Try that again. What had he just done? He had Jesus said it. He'd just risen from the dead. Look again at verse 18. Having risen from the dead, as Jesus opens his mouth and speaks, how much authority did he claim to have? One word, three letters. Very good. Question number four. In what two realms did he claim to have this authority? In and on earth. Absolutely. Question number five. Who's he talking to? Us, exactly. He's talking to his disciples, those who know him, those who knew him then, and those who know him now. I ask you those questions, and I ask you to consider the response. Because I want to ask you another question. I don't want your response to, I want you to think about it. Could it be that as believers we have forgotten who we work for? Could it be that as believers in Jesus Christ, we have forgotten who it is we work for? I would suggest, again, just based on the evidence, and, and I'm just gonna, let me just say this sort of blanket statement. I've said it the past two weeks. I'll say it again. We're, we're going to deal with some hard stuff in the remaining time of this message today. Understand it, that if it comes across as hard, if it hurts, it's because I've dealt with it first, and I'm saying it to you because I care so much, and I am processing all of this through with you as well. But I ask you to consider the question of could we have perhaps forgotten who we work for? Because as I look around at the way things are today, at this particular point in time, I, I get the impression that even some of us as believers, we are more in awe of the mainstream media than we are of the Savior and lover of our souls. I am concerned that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are more infatuated with the trends and the realities and the glamour of pop culture than we are with the eternal written word of God. I am concerned that we, not you, we, we are more informed on books, movies, sports, entertainment than we are about the essential realities and truths of our Christian faith. And as such, our sails are not yet set because we're trying to live and hold on to two worlds. See, revival-minded people who become revival-ready churches are those who believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, period, end of the sentence. He is Lord. He is King. He has it under control. All authority in heaven on earth is, and on earth is his. They're grappling with their doubts. They're living in two worlds, at least momentarily. Jesus says, you've forgotten something, or, or if you haven't, didn't know it, I'm, I'm here to tell you. All authority, all of it, all of it is mine. I'm not sweating and I'm not afraid. And bringing those two things to our attention, first of all, the, the reality of worship and yet doubt and, and concern, maybe even some indifference. And Jesus' response with this declaration of authority, having done that, having established that, having said what he said in verse 18, 
That is what enabled both believers then and now to respond to what he then offers next in verses 19 and 20. The third thing I want you to see here this morning, a call which must be answered. A call which must be answered. There was an unspoken dilemma. The dilemma was doubt, double-mindedness, trying to live in two worlds at one time. Jesus responds with this declaration of authority. Hey guys, it all belongs to me. I'm in charge of it all. And as a result, there is now a call which must be answered. If we are, at least it must be answered, let me say this. It must be answered if we are at all serious about preparing our hearts and our church for revival. If and whether it ever comes to us or not. But here's what I want you to understand. The call this morning, which must be answered, what I have in mind here in this statement, that there is a call that must be answered, is not the call of whether or not we're going to go and make disciples. That's the second question this passage presents. The call that comes first, the call we must grapple with and resolve before we ever get to what we call the Great Commission is the question of whether or not each of us individually, in our own heart, will fully surrender to Jesus Christ's authority. The authority he clearly claims to have. And while that sounds simple, yes I will or no I won't, it it, it sounds like a simple decision. I think you agree with me even though I haven't said the rest of what I'm going to say to you, it's not necessarily easy to entirely yield, surrender to Christ's authority. It's a clear decision. It's not an easy one. So in the time we have left, here's what I want to do. Using this passage and several others as well, what I want to do is offer you four things, four factors to help you, help me, help us process our decision. Where do we really stand, and what are we going to do in response to the claim that Jesus possesses all authority? Four things here in God's Word I want to see. First of all, four things we need to think about, the first of which is this. I want you to think, number one, in processing where you stand on Jesus' claim to total authority, think first, this may sound weird, but about the company that we keep. As believers in Jesus Christ, think about the company that we keep. Because here's something that dawned on me recently. In fact, I remember exactly where I was, where I was sitting, when it occurred to me. Dawned on my heart like never before. And what dawned on me, what God impressed on my heart in that particular moment, is that if what Jesus said here is actually true, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Listen to this. We then, if he meant what he said, belong to the single most powerful, authoritative, influential, enduring movement on planet earth. That's what we belong to. Now I know you can look around the room and everything you see suggests otherwise, right? We look around at at what we can see. We go, really? We belong to the most influential, powerful, authoritative, enduring movement on planet Earth. I'm sitting in the room where the plaster's cracked, the floor squeaks, and half the people are thinking about baseball, right? This is the movement that's changing the world? This is the most powerful thing the world has ever seen? Actually, yes. And by God's design, because we don't believe in coincidences, the verse, one of the verses that tells us is one John already read to us. It's 2 Peter 2.9, where God's word says this. Here's what you are if you know Jesus Christ. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are the people of God's own possession. And you know what Jesus said about us? 
listen to this, hold on. Not even the gates of hell can defeat us. Not even the gates of hell can prevail against us. Take another look around the room. Think about the company that you keep. Not what they look like, not what I look like, not what you look like, what Jesus says about us. We belong to something bigger and better and more pivotal than we think. So as you process your response to Jesus' claim to absolute authority, think first of all about the company you keep. Think about who he says you belong to, who you are because of him. Secondly, hand in hand with processing the company that we keep, I want you to think secondly about the resources that as a result we possess. Think about the resources that as believers we possess. And for this, I simply want to read you a series of things Jesus said. Very little comment. I just want you to listen to his words. If it'll help, they'll be on the screen behind me. Here are some things Jesus, when he was here on earth, told us. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. Him who knocks, it will be opened. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you abide in me, And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. Pop quiz number two. Who said those things? Jesus. Who did he say them to? us. Now let me ask you another question. Was Jesus who said these things to us, as you read the Bible and as you have walked with the Lord, have you ever noticed him saying things he didn't really mean? No. Was Jesus in the habit, as he went about his life in ministry, of embellishing statements in order to make greater impact? No. Either he meant what he said or he didn't. Either he was telling the truth or he's a liar. This is what he said. These are the resources available to us. Listen, grapple all you want with the the questions and challenges some of those things I just read to you possess because there are some interesting statements there. And we have to process through sometimes where and how they apply. Even so, even if you have questions about any of those things Jesus said, I beg you not to miss this message, that what Jesus is saying to us is this. We are not losers in a losing cause. We are not failures in a failed endeavor. We may be in the minority. We may feel weak and helpless. Guess what? That's exactly where he wants us. That's when these promises take on their greatest power. So as you hear Jesus saying to you, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and you're standing between two worlds, first of all, think of the company we keep. Second of all, grapple with the resources we possess. And then use them as a filter. Wow. 
Watches don't mean things to preachers anyway. <laughs> Thirdly, use those as the filter through which you run and process the excuses that as believers we sometimes offer. There's the company we keep. There's the resources we possess. Those are to become the filter through which we deal with, we confront the excuses we offer. What do I mean by that? I want you to take a moment and think about some of the authority figures that exist in your life today, okay? Just some of the relationships you're in, situations where there are other people in authority over you, and I specifically want you to think how you respond to that authority when they exercise it. By that I mean, what do you do when the supervisor at work says the deadline on this project is next Friday, no questions asked, it must be done. Young people, I want you to think when your teacher, your professor in the classroom says these projects, this paper is due tomorrow or it's zero credit. When they exercise that authority, what do you do? Teenagers, when dad says car's in the garage and you're in the door by midnight, when he exercises that authority, if you ever hope to use the car again, (laughs) what do you do? How do you respond to the other areas in which authority is exercised and influenced in your life? Now, take that attitude, that response, and put it next to your attitude toward participation in the body of Jesus Christ. I'm just going to lay this out. This is for you to deal with in your heart before the Lord as I am dealing with it in mine. What do I mean? What is your attitude as a believer in Jesus toward regular participation in the gathering of God's people for Sunday worship? What is your attitude, your response to Christ's authority when it comes to using your spiritual gift? What is your attitude toward his authority when it comes to the call to give generously, to serve sacrificially, to share the gospel, and even as it says here, to go make disciples? Here's the question that I have, and God is dealing with it in my heart in heavy ways. Isn't it truer than we would like to admit that oftentimes in our lives, our commitment to Christ and the things of his kingdom is the one commitment that is most negotiable and least binding. It's the one we're always willing to play with. It's the thing that too often we take least seriously, disregard most easily, complain about most loudly, and excuse our lack of involvement in most strenuously. As I look around, listen, this is not a you, this is an us. But isn't it true that in some situations there are those in the body of Christ who entrust more authority in their life and their schedule to a fourth grade soccer coach than the Lord of Lords and King of Kings? We would never be late for practice. We can't miss practice. Church, well, you know. My gift, I don't know, I'm a busy person. The soccer coach doesn't have all authority in heaven and earth, but someone does. And you belong to them, and so do I. And he's speaking these words to us. Maybe that's why, despite our familiarity with the Great Commission, again, we know these words so well. According to one authority, the Church of Jesus Christ, believing churches in America, 15% of them are growing today. 
2% by new conversion. That means the other 13% are growing by grabbing members of other churches. Maybe the reason verses 19 and 20 don't happen is we don't really believe verse 18. And we don't see it not as a hammer he's trying to crush us with, but an invitation and a call to get in on the most enduring, influential, powerful, transformative movement this world has or will ever see. And if our sails are going to be set when the rushing wind blows... We need to think about the company we keep. We need to think about the resources we possess and go, you know, there's really no room for the excuses I continue to offer of why I don't have to do anything. What his word says. All authority is his. See, well, it's a hard teaching. Yes, it is. But there's one more thing we need to process, and it's right here in front of us, and they are words many of you know well. That as we process our response to the authority of Jesus Christ, the company, the resources, doing away with the excuses, there's one more thing, and it is at the end, right there, verse 20, it's the promise that Jesus made. There is a promise in all this, and it's a good one. You know, where I am in life right now, one of the most, at this point in my life, one of the most difficult 24-hour periods I have ever endured, emotionally speaking, Two summers ago, when on back-to-back days, I took my oldest two children to college for the first time, all right? Some of you have been there. You know what I'm talking about. I don't know if you've done it on back-to-back days. It's emotionally brutal, right? On a Thursday, we got up at 6 in the morning. We drove my daughter to Chicago. 8 o'clock at night, we said our goodbyes. We were a mess. It was awful. We're leaving our daughter in the heart of the big city. Drove home, get home at 2, wake up 6 the next morning, do it all over again, taking our son up to Emmaus. And I was wrecked for days. And, and I get that that's natural. And, and, and there's all sorts of reasons. And if you've taken your kids to school, you know what that's like. If you haven't, you will someday. Just brace yourself. It's not fun. And it's not fun for a lot of different reasons. But one of the, one of the realizations you have in those final sort of moments of goodbye, what makes it so hard is the recognition in flesh and blood that what I have spent 18 years preparing you to do, I cannot go do with you. I can't do it for you. I have to release you to figure it out now for yourself. Life has a lot of those moments, and they're hard. Jesus' great commission is not one of them, is it? It's very very different. Go therefore. Because all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, here it is. I am with you. Always. Even at the very end of the age. I will be with you. Now, most of the time when we quote that verse to one another, we do so as a promise of extraordinary comfort. And it absolutely is a promise of extraordinary comfort. But that's not all it is. It is also a call to extraordinary courage, to unshakable commitment. You can get this thing done because I'm not sending you out to do it and going to watch and see how badly you mess up. No, I've already gone before you. I've promised to come behind you. And as you go, I will go with you always, no matter what. 
And I would ask you another question, which is this, with those four things in mind, the company we keep, the resources we possess, dealing with the excuses we offer, and the promise he made, what more incentive does any believer need to surrender entirely to Jesus Christ's authority? To truly say from our heart, whatever, whenever, however, I'm in. I'm in. Because I want to see an extraordinary movement of God. And even if it's not full-fledged revival, I want him to revive what? Me. For his kingdom. You know, often when we get, and I know we're out of time, but often when we get to the application part of a sermon, we spend a lot of time talking about the things we aren't going to do anymore. Right? Because of what Jesus said, I'm going to stop X. I'm going to stop saying X. I'm going to stop doing Y. I'm going to stop behaving Z. And sometimes that's appropriate, but today's not one of those days. Today is not about what we're going to stop doing unless it's making excuses. Because the Great Commission is nothing if not a call to action. Not to say no to things we shouldn't be doing, but to say yes to what we were supposed to be doing all along. To get in on what he's doing here and now to build his kingdom as we pray and prepare for revival. And that's why the big idea this morning is that revival-minded people respond to Christ's authority. They don't acknowledge Christ's authority. They don't believe in Christ's authority. Acknowledge and believing in it, they respond to it. Here's the question. Because Jesus is Lord and the time is now, what will you do? Let's bow our heads.